Okay, well, I'll start in. We'll get as far as we can. Well, it's great to be with you, all of you here at Gospel of Grace. And one of the questions I want to address here this morning is, I don't know about you, but I've often wondered for years about the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the sun, the moon, and the stars being darkened. And one of the things I wrestled with is, are they literally darkened or is it merely symbolic? Well, I hope to give some answers here today and as we proceed into next week. But what I'm going to be laying out for you is that in the day of the Lord, the sun, moon, and stars will literally be darkened in the future. But in the prophet's day, in Joel's day, I think it was largely figurative. It was symbolic of the world ending for the people who experienced the judgments that they experienced. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Today, I'm going to show you that the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars was figurative in Joel's day, but it anticipated a day which is still in our future, in which as God wrestled the cosmos away from Satan, the sun, moon, and stars would literally be shaken in the future day of the Lord. And so I want to begin by talking about verses 3 through 4, where the Israelites had a tremendous fear of this coming northern army. And it's a fear that Joel Eric, Eric, your so, Eric, your sound is going in and out, in and out. Make sure you're staying good and close to your mic. All right, I'll try to do that. I'm sorry about the sound. Is it better, Bob? Um, I want you to recall that back in Joel chapter 1, we had the Israelites really fearing this locust plague. But when we get to Joel chapter 2, what God warned them is that if they didn't repent, they would have human enemies that would come. And these enemies would come from the north. And I'm going to show you when we get to Joel 2.20 that indeed these were northern armies. Now, why would the armies always come from the north to attack Israel? Well, one of the reasons they did so is because it was very formidable for whether it would be the Babylonians or the Assyrians to go through the Arabian desert. They couldn't just go west and attack the promised land. They had to follow what's called the Fertile Crescent. So they would go northwest, then they would come down from the north to attack Israel. And so that was why it was always the enemy from the north. Now, the northern part of Israel then is where these enemies came from. And this northern enemy became very fierce in reputation. And I want you to see some of the biblical evidence of why they feared them. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 1. And I want you to turn to verses 12, excuse me, verses 13 through 14. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. And what you're going to see here as you turn to Jeremiah chapter 1 was that, yes, there was a northern army, whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians, that would come against them. In Jeremiah's day, it was the Babylonians. So Jeremiah 1, 13 through 14, notice what it says. It says, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Now stop there for just a moment. Everyone knows what a boiling pot is. The Israelites had the same thing. They would boil food, they would boil water. Well, here the image is that the boiling pot is facing away from the north, meaning it was tilting to the, towards the south. So if it's tilting towards the south, what does that mean? It's about to overflow. In the image, it was, it was going to bring a flood upon the land of Israel, a flood of judgment. That's the image. Now continue into verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. 
So it was always from the north that the enemies came. Now, I want to show you that the fear of the enemy from the north wasn't simply because that's the direction they came, but it's also because that was seen by the Israelites as a demonic stronghold. And the reason why is you had Mount Hermon to the north and also another mountain called Mount Cassius, which is on the Syrian-Turkey border. And those were known as areas of Baal worship and the worship of the pantheon of the false gods of the Canaanites. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 14. I want you to see this. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 13. Please turn your Bibles there. I'm sorry, I'm shooing some flies here. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 13. And as you're turning there, remember this passage is really about the king of Babylon, but ultimately it's about who motivates and invigorates the king of Babylon, which is Satan himself. Now I say that because in Isaiah 14, 4, the Israelites were to lift up a mashal. It's usually rendered in our English versions a taunt against the king of Babylon. However, mashal often is rendered, in fact, exclusively throughout the Old Testament as a proverb. So what I think is going on in Isaiah 14 is that there's an underlying motivating force behind the king of Babylon, and it's Satan. Why? Because Satan wants to use Babylon to wipe out the promised people the people of God, Israel. And so just as we would read in, in our Bible, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, that our ultimate battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, that was where the enemy of the north really got its power. That's another reason why the Israelites feared it. Notice it says, Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 13. Here's the mashal. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn you have been cut down to the earth you who have weakened the nations now stop there for just a moment in verse 12 notice the language star of the morning son of the dawn this is all language that's used of an angelic being okay now we can say it's just hyperbolic language for the king of babylon but i think the idea behind the mashal is it's revealing who is motivating the king of babylon it's satan this this creature that's being depicted does exactly what Satan does. So Satan wants to wipe out Israel and he's motivating Babylon. Notice verse 13, but you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the North. Now notice the phrase recesses of the North. That's the famous phrase you've heard me talk about, Zaphon, um, not a telephone, but Zaphon, which is the Northern mountains Again, Mount Hermon, Mount Cassius to the north of that, where the pagans believed that Baal resided. They believed that El, the, the, pan, the chief of the pantheon of the Canaanite gods, resided there. And so this is a demonic stronghold. And I don't have to tell you, this is exactly where Jesus was first confessed to be Christ. Remember, I've talked about that numerous times. Back in Matthew 16, where does Peter first confess that Jesus is the Christ? at the base of Mount Hermon, the recesses of the north, the demonic stronghold, where the Nephilim came down, where you have Baal worship. All of this is to the north. So not only are these enemies literally coming from the north, but it's seen by the Israelites as the realm of the demonic. And so all of this is designed, I think, by Joel, as he's warning them about this northern enemy to remind them of the power that's arrayed against them. It would bring fear to them. 
Okay. So with that, let me turn then to the first couple of verses, Joel 2, 3 through 4. Notice it says, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is notice the, the pronoun them. Notice it says a fire consumes before them. The them is actually who in Hebrew. Now, who is a third person masculine singular pronoun. So you can render it, a fire consumes before him and behind him a flame burns. So this creates some interpretive difficulty. Is Joel referring to the northern army or is he referring to God who sends the northern army? In fact, God is depicted in Ezekiel, or excuse me, Exodus 24. He's also depicted in Psalm 97.3 as a consuming fire against his adversaries and his enemies. Now, I do think that the NAS is steering us the right direction here by using them, because the reference of the entire passage is about the northern army. But it gives us a clue that who ultimately is using them is God. Okay. In fact, the reason I think him is used, it's probably the prototypical northern army soldier, whether it be the Assyrian or the later the Babylonian. So again, that's how I think it would be understood. Again, God is ultimately behind it, though. Now, also notice here it says the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. What's interesting is this language has to do really with a reversal of the created order a bringing back to chaos. So remember, when God creates all things, he overcomes chaos. But oftentimes, the day of the Lord is depicted as a period in which God is going to reverse the created order, and he's going to bring chaos back. Now, in the prophet's day, like Joel, this chaos and the reversal of creation would be limited. It would be short-lived. It would be just temporary, that's for sure but it was depicted as a reversal of creation. Now, I want you to see this in 2 Peter 3. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3.10, because again, one of the themes in the day of the Lord is a smiting not only of God's enemies, but also reversal of the created order, at least temporarily, and then God brings the new creation. So we see this idea in 2 Peter 3.10. Turn your Bibles there, if you will. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Now, the reason I want you to turn there is you're going to see a reference to the future day of the Lord. And you're going to see Peter link this to the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Okay, again, an undoing of creation, a bringing back of chaos, although it's followed by a new creation, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, which is going to be the playground for the people of God. 2 Peter 3, 10, notice Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, stop there for just a moment. For Peter, he believes the day of the Lord starts like a thief. Okay, well, Jesus taught that his parousia comes like a thief. The apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. They are all teaching the same thing. The parousia, the 70th week of Daniel, is the beginning of the day of the Lord. But as you follow 2 Peter 3, Notice how far he extends the day of the Lord too. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar 
and the elements will be destroyed within 10 feet and the earth and its works will be burned up. So notice here, Peter extends the day of the Lord until the destruction of the old heavens, the old earth. Well, that's after the millennial kingdom. So again, he depicts the day of the Lord starting like a thief at the 70th week of Daniel, but it extends it at least a thousand years past the millennial kingdom. Because remember, it's not until Revelation 21 that you have the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. That's after the millennial kingdom. And that's why I said we should conceive the day of the Lord as a broad period of time. All right. But here again, the major point is in 2 Peter 3, Peter sees the day of the Lord as a reversal of creation. Yes, there's going to be a new creation, but it's a reversal. All right. Now, that's being foreshadowed here, even in Joel's day, as the promised land is absolutely being torched. It will one day be absolutely destroyed by these coming armies. Now, notice in verse 4, it says that their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Now, that would be very fearsome to the Israelite because the average Israelite soldier was a foot soldier. The Israelites never had many chariots. They were never a horse-mounted army by and large. Solomon did have some chariots, and he did have even a chariot corps. But prior to that, David was a man who was primarily a foot soldier, and so was his army. And so the chariots and the horses brought a lot of fear to the foot soldier because obviously a huge beast running at you at top speed would be a very ferocious thing. And so I won't have you turn to this, but just jot this down. Jeremiah 6.23, Jeremiah 50, verse 42. These are cross-references that show us the fear that the Israelites had of the soldiers that were on horseback. Yes, the horses brought fear. So again, all this is designed to talk about the fear of this coming northern army. Now, let's continue here. This further description of this fearsome northern army, Joel 2, 5 through 7, it says, with a noise as of chariots, they leap on the top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are pale, or excuse me, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. Now, first of all, notice here, you see this reference to the noise of the chariots. When there was a battle in the ancient Near East, if it happened in hill country, the sound of the hooves and the sound of the chariot wheels would be largely muffled in the valley. But as soon as those chariots or those horses broke over the top of the mountain, the soldiers on the opposing side could hear the thunder. And that's what's being depicted. The average Israelite who was in the army knew the fear of hearing that. Okay, that's the idea. And the Israelites did a lot of battle in the hill countries with the Philistines. They did some with the Assyrians and even the Babylonians later. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice here we have a what seems to be a simile. It says that they are like the crackling of flame of fire. And I want you to take note that that like, I think the first one is certainly a simile, but oftentimes you have these similes that appear to be similes, it's like, it's literally ba in Hebrew. And it appears to be a simile, but it really isn't. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Notice it says that they are like a mighty people. Many times Joel uses like to refer to the ideal, not just a simile. 
And the reason I say that, it's not that they were just like a mighty people. They are a mighty people. So if you think, well, they're not really a mighty people. And so perhaps this is still a reference maybe back to the locusts because locusts really aren't people. They are like people in, in, the, in the way that they invade, that is. But no, I think he's talking about a real army. And the idea here is that the like means that they are the ideal. They are the ideal mighty people. They aren't just like mighty men. They are the ideal mighty men. They aren't just like soldiers. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were the ideal soldiers. Now, let me show you, I'm not just making this up, this idea that Joel uses the term like that way. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Joel 1.15. Turn your Bibles back one chapter, Joel 1.15. So I want you to turn there because I want you to see that indeed God has Joel use like to refer to the ideal. Joel 1.15, I'm going to show you how he used that preposition there. Joel 1.15, notice Joel says this. He says, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Notice where it says as destruction. That's the as is the same preposition like. Now, does that mean Joel intends to say that it's just like destruction, but it's not actually destruction? It's just a simile? No, it's the ideal destruction. It's not just like destruction. It is the ideal destruction that comes from the hand of God. In the same way, he's using ba, the preposition like, to refer to the ideal. This northern army is the ideal mighty people, the ideal mighty men, and the ideal soldiers. They are to be feared. They are not to be messed with. When they come upon you, you will not win. That's the message that Joel is bringing to the people of Judah. Now, notice here in red, the result of it is given. It says, before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. This is very similar language that you have with the labor pains that Jesus uses in Matthew 24, 8. The same labor pains that you see in Isaiah 13, 8. The same labor pains that Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, very similar language. When God's wrath comes upon people, it brings fear. It brings pain and anguish. Okay, that's the idea. Now, again, this is just the human armies. This is merely foreshadowing the greater wrath that will come in the future day of the Lord. The future day of the Lord is depicted as birth pains. It'll go for seven years, and then what is birthed, of course, will be the messianic age. I'm just going to check my time because I want to leave some time for questions and answers. We won't be able to get through all the message here today. But let's keep moving on. Notice here he continues about the fear of the northern army. Joel 2, 8 through 9, he says, They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Now, Joel's whole point, again, is to show that when these northern armies come, the people of Judah are not going to fare well. They're not going to be able to fend them off. They should be in fear of this. And so, of course, this is being used by Joel to drive the people of Judah to repentance. This isn't a judgment that they're going to escape. And in fact, in history, when you look at the track record of the Israelite army against the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they fared very poorly. The Assyrians and Babylonians had far better armies. Okay, now 
we know that the Assyrians, they lost 185,000 men. Remember under Sennacherib when they surrounded Jerusalem? But that wasn't because of the prowess of the Israelite army. It was because God supernaturally intervened and he smote the enemy as it were. Okay, so again, this is designed by Joel to say, you're not going to fare well, you're going to be smitten, and you should therefore repent. That's the idea. Let's keep moving on. Now, here we come to the language of the sun, moon, and stars. Notice here, Joel 2.10 through 11. It says, before them, the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Now, dear ones, I want you to notice the cosmic language. You have the heavens tremble. You have the earth quake. You have the sun, moon, and stars growing dark. And the question here, I think, is this raises, are these things to be taken literally? Okay, when the northern armies came down upon Israel, did the sun and the moon literally grow dark and the stars lose their brightness? I don't think they did. There's no recording that that actually occurred when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came down. So how should we understand then this phrase that we see in red, the sun, moon, and stars being darkened? Well, the way I think we should understand it is in Joel chapter 2, it is certainly figurative. Okay, but it still means something very important. When we get to Joel chapter 3, I think it is literal because it has to do with the end of the world, the end of the age. All right. But here in Joel chapter 2, it is figurative of the end of the world coming upon the people of Judah. So think of it this way. Sometimes if you have a, a little kid and they lose a toy or something gets destroyed that they really love, you might say, well, it's not the end of the world. Okay, so we use the end of the world sometimes to refer to something that's cataclysmic. Well, here, the phrase sun, moon, stars growing dim was the way that they would say the end of the world. And for all practical purposes, when the Assyrians came down and when the people of Babylon came down, for the people that were living in Judah who lost everything, they lost their families, they lost their farms, they lost their livelihood, they lost their lives, they lost their religion, they lost their temple, they were deported. It was the end of the world. It would be like saying to a Jew during the reign of Hitler, if you lived in Europe, that when Hitler came to power, it was the end of their world. Why? Because their world was never the same after that, at least in Europe. Okay, so that's how the language, I think, is certainly being used here. But again, it's going to be literal in the future day of the Lord. In the future day of the Lord, the sun, moon, and stars will literally be darkened. And that's an emphasis in the 70th week of Daniel. So again, as I've mentioned before, in the preliminary judgments in the prophet's day, they were always designed to foreshadow the greater reality that would happen still in our future, the future day of the Lord. That's the near and the far. Okay. Now, I want you to notice here when he talks about the sun, moon, and stars growing dim. Notice right after in verse 11, he says, the Lord utters his voice before. So who is ultimately responsible for the coming of these human enemies? It's the Lord. Okay, that's why I, I always kind of question people who say, well, I see it as the wrath of man in the future day of the Lord. 
They say, oh, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel is the wrath of man, but it's not the wrath of God. God is depicted throughout the scriptures as using the nations as instruments of his wrath. In fact, in Isaiah 10, 5, he explicitly says he uses Assyria as the rod of his indignation or the rod of his wrath. God is the one who is behind the judgments of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God uses the nations as his pawns, as his tools against his own people in the day of the Lord. That's what he's doing here. And that's what Joel is describing. Now, notice here, it says that the day of the Lord, we can't miss this. This is the day of the Lord. Judgment is indeed great and very awesome. Notice the question, who can endure it? Well, the answer to that is going to come when we get to verse 12, all the way through verse 17. The answer is those who repent and believe. And so when I get through this message, I was planning on doing that next week. But whenever we get through this one and we get into the next one, I'll be focusing on repentance and faith. Okay, that's the only way anyone can stand before the Lord in the future day of the Lord. All right. That's what this is about. The only way anyone can ever rest assured that they can stand before a holy and righteous God during his wrath is by turning from sin, turning from idolatry and turning to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. In Joel's day, they looked forward to the coming of the cross. You and I look back, but we're still saved by faith. How was Abraham justified? Well, Paul argues from Genesis 15, 6, that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham lived some 900 years prior to the writing of Joel. The people of God were always justified the same way you and I are, by repentance and faith, believing in God in his promises. Okay, so let me wrap this up. I want to kind of make sure we're all on the same page. What I'm claiming then is that in Joel chapter two, the language of the sun, moon, and stars losing their brightness, growing dim is figurative. Like you would say, the end of the world has come upon them. But when we get to Joel chapter three, we're going to be looking at the final battle in which the Messiah is going to intervene. Then I think the language of the sun, moon, and stars being darkened is to be taken literally. Why? Because it is an emphasis in the future day of the Lord. Yes, as God comes to bring wrath upon the world, he's going to shake the cosmic tree. He will be shaking, as it were, the earth and all that the earth requires to have life, including the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. Okay? Now, when these things happen, though, the good news is, is it's going to bring about the kingdom to Israel. Now, let me remind you of the cosmic disturbances that we have in the 70th week. Remember, I showed you last couple of weeks, we had talked about the 70th week of Daniel and how that is synonymous with the day of the Lord. Well, interestingly enough, we see within this day of the Lord period, these cosmic disturbances. So, for example, at the sixth seal in Revelation 6, 12 through 17, which again is still in our future, this is the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, what do you have? You have the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. You have a great earthquake, just as depicted in Joel ch chapter 2. But this time, I think it's not figurative. It's literal. Okay? We see the same thing when you get to the fourth trumpet. This is found in Revelation 8, 12. That's where the fourth trumpet is sounded, and a third of the sun is darkened, and a third of the moon is darkened. And they don't give their light for a third of the day and a third of the night, respectively. Okay, when you get to the fifth trumpet, you have the bottomless pit, which is Hades. 
the bottomless abyss is going to be opened and the smoke that rises is going to obscure the sun. I think that's literal. I don't think John is blowing bubbles when he sees these things. I think they're literal cosmic disturbances. You have another one. You have the fourth bowl, Revelation 16, 8. That's where the sun becomes so hot, it begins to scorch men. That will really be global warming then in the 70th week of Daniel. But it doesn't end there. We have a fifth cosmic disturbance that's, I believe, referred to in both Joel 3.15 and Matthew 24.29, where, again, it goes back to the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. Okay, So in some sense, the 70th week of Daniel is bracketed by the sun, moon, and stars being darkened, that language. And then you have cosmic disturbances, other ones in the middle of it. Now, how do we know Joel 3.15 is at the end of the 70th week? Well, we know it because the context in Joel 3.2 is all about the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. Well, that's when the Messiah comes back. It's the same thing that Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 24.29. Now, what's the grand point? The grand point is in the future day of the Lord, it is going to be characterized by cosmic disturbances of the sun, moon, and stars, and they will be literal. So in Joel chapter 2, what happened in the prophet's day was figurative. It was the end of the world when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came. But when Jesus Christ returns to bring his wrath upon the enemies of God, it literally will be the end of the age, the consummation of the age, the end of the world, and these things will be literal. Now, I, I don't want to leave this passage out, Isaiah 13, 10. Remember, in Isaiah 13, what's it about? It's about the future day of the Lord. And notice how Isaiah describes it. He says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. So dear ones, I think the best way we can understand this is to understand again, the figurative language in Joel chapter two is going to give way to literal language of the sun, moon, and stars in Joel chapter 3. Why? Because it's connected to the future day of the Lord. Okay, now I won't go any further. I realize we only have four minutes left, but I want to open some time up for a few comments, questions, and discussion points. And so I will do that at this point, and we'll continue the rest of this next week. I hope my sound was better, by the way. Did it get better, Bob? Yes, we got it fixed. Oh, good, good. I'm we glad. We were fine the last 20 minutes or so at least. It was just fine. We heard you very well. I got a All question right. then that Peter reference to the day of the Lord is really quite different, isn't it, than the ones in Matthew 24? Or it's yeah. the same. Is, how do we take that as the day of the Lord, basically an eschatological event? Whenever it happens, or how do we do that? Yeah, the way I understand Second Peter 3.10 is he talks about the beginning of the day of the Lord coming like a thief. Just like Jesus talks about the parousia coming like a thief. Oh. And I think that that's the, the beginning of the 70th week. But what Peter's doing is he's extending it outward until you have the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the new creation. And that passage, I think, is very important, 2 Peter 3.10, because it shows us the day of the Lord for Peter was a really broad period of time. It begins at the 70th week, just as Jesus describes it, but it extends all the way through uh, Revelation chapter 20. So think of the book of Revelation, chapter 6 begins the 70th week, 
Peter begins the day of the Lord there because it comes like a thief. There's no warning. Okay. But he extends it all the way through Revelation chapter 20, where you're going to have a new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem beginning in chapter 21. So he sees the day of the Lord certainly not as a 24-hour period, but as a very broad period of time. Okay, well, let me tell you something that I think makes some sense then to me. Yeah. So we have the church age going on. Yep. And then the day of the Lord will come suddenly unexpectedly. Yeah. So then they have the millennium. Okay, we'll be part of that. Yep. I think there's a little irony there in the sense that we can understand the day of the Lord because it's so evil now. Well, imagine when you've had a thousand years of Jesus reigning and the the good things that happen all through the millennium, and yet yeah. the day of the Lord comes again. Yeah, they rebel again. They rebel yet again. So it shows that the sin nature is a real biblical, true biblical doctrine because there yes. are people born and raised during the millennium who don't have their glorified bodies. And even in that situation, they go back to evil. Amen. Well said, Bob. It's a final reminder that it's not our environment that makes us sin. It's it's our sin nature that makes us sin. Yeah, that's right. It's in humans. And you know, it's interesting, the structure of Revelation, you have the seven seals. The seventh one opens to the seven trumpets. Well, the seventh one opens to the seven bowls. Well, then what happens at the seventh bowl is it's left open. And I think that's John's way of describing that the day of the Lord really goes on to eternity because forever the enemies of God will be judged and forever the saints of God, those who belong to him by faith, are going to be saved. And so it's depicted the day of the Lord is beginning at a certain point but going on into eternity. Wow! I think that that's the best description is the broad day of the Lord. It's a time where you and I are forever saved and they're forever judged. Could you close us in prayer, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. Let me bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you are coming to not only save, but also to redeem your world, to bring back the possession of it for your son, to to make sure all of your promises come true. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters, that we'd be those who are found in the faith in Christ when you do return. I do pray for Bob as he teaches out of Ephesians today. I do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would Uh, Bless him, uh, give us ears to hear and understanding so that we may be not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.